Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to Starkville. Baseball Hall of Famer Jason Stark. And then the robot said, strike. That's why you're going in the Hall of Fame. It's an inside the park home run. Doug Glanville. Mike tried his coffee at Starbucks with a double latte skinny. Doug, are you ready to make some podcast magic? I am ready. Bring on the magic wand. Let's do it. <laughs> Greetings and welcome to Starkville, now part of the Athletic Baseball Show, where you'll find great baseball talk all week long and all off-season long. I'm Jason Stark. I write about baseball for the Athletic, and I am joined once again by my good friend, writer, broadcaster, professor, distinguished former major leaguer, and now Emmy Award winner. Doug Glanville. Doug, you, you won an Emmy this weekend, man. And and I know that's not all. So congratulations and tell us about all these honors you've been raking in since the last time we spoke. Yeah, I mean, what a weekend, man. I, I just um, still kind of floating on it. But, you know, I had the video a couple of, well, a couple of years or last year with George Floyd and how the world yeah. responded to him called Enough and uh, ESPN partnered with Outside the Lines and a lot of the long form teams. And I was able to write the the lyrics and to narrate it. And they did a fantastic job. And it was nominated for an Emmy. But um, it, the year later, it's still in in um, sort of contention to be nominated for this salute to excellence uh, for the National Association of Black Journalists. So wow. so they um, yeah, they they voted for it in a television short form. So I was kind of watching online. It's like, oh, wow, it won, actually. <laughs> so um, so that was really exciting. And and then um, the regional Emmys, you know, each section of the country, the Midwest, where Chicago, of course, is I think it's Indiana and Wisconsin and so on. So I, I do the show classes in session, which is sort of my professor work at UConn or where I've taught in sort of television form. I bring in guests, I have essays, I have post-game, I have closings and video and all these things. And we just talk about current events once a month that are the intersection of sport and society. And it literally was from the you know a seed. We just started talking about it. It's something I've always wanted to do. I teach this course and we just kind of kept chipping away at it. And then Marquee Sports Network was like, yeah, let's go. You know, And I pitched it a lot of times, a lot of places, but they were really interested and so we got a sponsor, UI Health, University of Illinois, and we kind of ran with it and it just kind of get better. And my guests have been incredible. And the the episode that really kind of broke through is uh, Ken Rosenthal, Curtis Granderson and Jason Hayward talking about moving the All-Star game uh, from Atlanta. And so that that was like the, the one that sort of got the nomination out there. So it's it's been really cool. And 
uh, you know, it's, it's all, it's related to baseball. It's more of the inspiration of sports, but uh, you know, I always love to bring my baseball sensibility to it, but uh, it's a, it's a great honor. And so many people put in tons of work, producers, directors, editors. I mean, it's, it's really a total team effort, but, um, but I wear a lot of hats in both of these cases and it's, it's nice to see the culmination of work come together on something you've kind of, you know, dreamed up from, from zero. Yeah, for sure. So congratulations. I, I honestly can't wait to see uh, what honors that you win this week. Grammy, Tony, <laughs> Nobel Prize, you up for any of them? Well, my vocals, unless I write the music, then that's the only way I'd be even close to that. Uh, yeah, I'm not in any Broadway plays anytime soon. And uh, when I become like a sovereign leader at some point, which uh, I don't think that's going to happen unless it's just of my Maybe I'm not even sovereign leader of my own property here, so I'm not sure how that's going to happen. But uh, we, can, we can dream. Yeah, I, you know, I, in, in, I think in the future, instead of having you like your old uniform tops hanging behind you in our in our zooms, <laughs> I want you to go the Max Scherzer route and just load it up with trophies, <laughs> like all your all your Emmys and all like all that stuff. Just fire it up behind you just to impress people like me. Yeah, a little bling. <laughs> yeah, I'll put a little bling back there. Yeah, right. But I, I actually have an Emmy too. So I would, I could go Emmy to Emmy with you, but yeah. the other stuff, you, you're yeah, way we got to do, we got to do that. Yeah. Let's, let's <laughs> dueling Emmys. <laughs> okay, sure. Whatever. These things are heavy, by the way. <laughs> anyway, speaking of honors, Doug, we have six new hall of famers and it's an incredible group. So I want to congratulate Jim Cott and Tony Oliva. Well, I'm so glad we're able to celebrate this moment with the many people who love them and to the late great. Buck O'Neill, Minnie Mignoso, Gil Hodges, and Bud Fowler. Uh, they were elected by the two era committees after their passing. Uh, look, I also want to talk about Dick Allen, who missed by one vote again. But, uh, but before we do that, Doug, and before we get to our fantastic guest this week, Andrew Miller, why don't we talk briefly about the men who did get elected? Now, it, you know, it felt to me like the election of Minnie Mignoso and Buck O'Neill were so overdue. And in their case, and, and actually, I think uh, to some degree in the cases of Jim Cott and Gil Hodges as well, uh, these committees did something that should have been a part of this process a long time ago. They honored men not just for what they did as players, but for the contributions that they made to their sport in other ways. Um, I just hope the era committees of the future follow that lead because it'll 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 be a way to honor people who have been slipping through the cracks of the sport and never making it into the Hall of Fame. Um, Doug, what was your first reaction to the the names that you heard on Sunday night? And I know you know some of these people personally. You know, I saw a, a big shift. Uh, I think you know, culturally as, as, as the hall is trying to redefine its gold standard in some ways. I think it's a good thing. It's been a hard, you know, couple of decades just sorting through PEDs. And obviously that's still a factor, but it is an opportunity at the same time to just sort of redefine things. And you, you tend to look backwards when you do that. You go back in time and think about the contributions. You see the Negro League statistics sort of being part of the fabric of professional baseball and how that right. relates to the Hall of Fame. I think those stories and you know people who are overlooked or not out of chance or just ha had different context in, in the time and the era by in which they played, 
it's important to look at that as we have all these modern metrics and we understand more in some ways, but we also, there's a, there's a kind of a through line in baseball that we love about it, right? We kind of want to be able to get on the monorail and go from 2021 to 1921 and feel like we're, you know, in the same destination. So I, you know, I, I've enjoyed watching and learning from this particular class, right? You think about Oliva and Cod and well, Munoza, what a story just, well, play, first of all, I loved how he played in the 1940s and in 1980. <laughs> I was like, wow, that's impressive. Um, but you know, the, the incredible contributions and, and Buck O'Neill, of course, just, uh, such a great story. So there's, um, there's just a lot to, to celebrate. And I think it's, it represents the diversity of not only of culture, but of time and, and allows baseball to, to be represented by all of it, which is the way it should be. Yeah. You know, one of my regrets, Doug, is I never met Buck O'Neill. Um, did you meet Buck? You know, I have to think about that. It, it seems like I did, but I just, yeah, I, I think I did in Chicago at one point. Yes. And mm -hmm. you know, I've met uh, quite a few of the players just because of, I've worked on a couple of committees like in Philadelphia to get the the statues and different honorings at Philadelphia stars was one project we worked on. Um, Buck Leonard was from Rocky Mount, which is where oh, my, yeah. my family was from. And he actually passed away same hospital about a month before my grandfather did in this, in the same time. So, you know, we used to, you know, see family. So there's, there's a lot of connections there. And I, you know, obviously working with Sharon Robinson, a lot with Jackie Robinson, I spent some time to learn more. I've been to the Negro League, you know, museum with, with Bob Kendrick. And so, uh, but Buck O'Neill just, um, you know, I, he epitomizes baseball at its finest because of the enduring impact. You know, this is someone that really, when you talk about that monorail, you put Buck O'Neill on it in like the thirties and the twenties and you just ride him into 2020. And it's, and it's, a, it's, it's still relevant. He's still so powerfully impactful that because he became this coach, he was a through line connecting the sort of understanding the sensibilities of the sport through the Negro leagues and then beyond. And then you think about Ernie Banks, you think of so many players that came on even post Jackie Robinson that, you know, were touched by Buck O'Neill and, and it just didn't stop there. You, you go into the 21st century and there he is again. Uh, it, it, you know, it's really remarkable to talk about probably someone who's had one of the longest impacts of time and a hands-on impact. This isn't just like, Oh, we had great numbers 50 years ago. This is someone that continued to <laughs> embrace the game every day. Uh, and and was just such a beacon of positivity, forgiveness, looking forward, um, you know, cultural unities. I, I just, you know, he just was amazing. So I, I'm really pleased to see the hall looking at through this perspective and this lens, because, you know, after all, when you have people like that, that the reason you have the game that you have and the reason that people respect the way the things that they do about the game and its history, you know, you have to come to Buck O'Neill is one of those prime examples. Yeah, as I said, I'm, 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 I really feel a sense of regret that somehow or other, our paths never crossed. I never met Buck. But I do remember being in the White Sox locker room after they won the 2005 World Series. And you know what, Doug? It's possible the happiest man in that room was Minnie Minoso, a guy who didn't even play. Um, this man just spread joy. And I'll never forget that night how people gravitated to him and how happy 
they felt for him and how happy he was back at them. You know, he got a 2005 World Series ring, which is is so cool. I, I like, how old was he? <laughs> you know, like, was he 90 years old? Yeah. Guys like that don't get World Series rings, but he deserved it. Uh, I also, I, I need to pass along a couple of other mini Minoso tidbits. Uh, these are from my Stark Truth book, uh, which is still available anywhere books are sold online, by the way. <laughs> okay. Great book. Uh, great there's, book. There, there's a great trivia question that my mini Minoso item starts with. What player got a hit in the 1970s, even though... He'd already appeared on a Hall of Fame ballot in the <laughs> 1960s. <laughs> that was many because he had kept doing these comebacks, right? So uh, he had he had a like a career unlike anyone has ever had. Oh. Played in the Cuban League in his teens, in the Negro League in his 20s, in the big leagues in his 50s, <laughs> and played in the Northern League when he was in his 70s. <laughs> And this guy, Doug, I've thought this for a long time. His life is a movie. Seriously. Not a doubt. A movie. Uh, somebody's got to make that one. You're just a man. Uh, be- be- before we talk about Dick Allen, like, don't you have some weird statistical parallel with Tony Oliva? <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, I-, I-, I looked. I said, wow, let me look at Oliva's numbers. And I found out in 1970. He had 204 hits in 628 at-bats for a 325 batting average. He was second in MVP voting. I was like, wait a minute, 204 for 628 sounded really familiar. And then I Googled this guy, <laughs> Doug Glanville. I'm like, wait a minute, that's the same numbers I had in 1999. No way. Can you, you had the same exact season? <laughs> same, same numbers. I mean, I actually had more doubles in him, which is amazing. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I got no MVP votes, so... Uh, I was unconscious in 99, <laughs> but uh, that was really right. cool to see. And Oliva just, you know, I mean, he was an all-star, obviously, so many times. Such a great player. But that was kind of fun. So, look, I, I always look at these numbers, and it just jumped out. I said, wait a minute, 204 hits. And That's uh, there it was, same year. <laughs> we, 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 we've got we've got to look up whether anybody else has ever had that season. It's just <laughs> the two of you. So maybe before the end of this show, we'll, we'll, we'll drop that in as a – random piece of useless information okay all right look just a quick word about the guy who didn't get in uh, a man we both had a personal connection to dick allen um i've talked and written about this before as you know but when i was a kid growing up in philadelphia dick allen was my very first favorite baseball player and the way that we look at like Giancarlo Stanton now, <laughs> you, know, the ba- you know, the baseballs that Giancarlo destroys. That's what Dick Allen was in his day. I, you know, I'd go to games at Old County Mac Stadium and we'd look around and we'd say, look at the signs on top of the upper deck on the roof and say, yep, he hit one over that sign, <laughs> hit one over that sign, hit one over that sign. There was this gigantic scoreboard in right. Yeah, he hit it over that. The, the center field fence was four... 147 feet away, I want to say, and with a, then a big wall behind that, and a flagpole, and he hit it over the flagpole behind the wall. It was like he did things that I didn't think humans could do. That's my point. And you know, the funny thing is, I'll admit that in the in the few chances that I had 
once I became a Hall of Fame voter, I, I never did vote for Dick Allen because he didn't have the counting numbers that mattered back then. You know, he never got to 1,900 hits. He never got to 400 home runs. Like, players with his set of numbers just didn't make the Hall of Fame back then. But I, I, I just wrote a piece for The Athletics on our site now about how even though Dick Allen's numbers haven't changed for over 40 years, our ability to evaluate what those numbers mean have changed a lot. We've got this modern data that tells us how dominant a hitter Dick Allen really was in his time, and yet he missed by one vote for the second straight election. Now, we believe he's the only candidate ever to miss by one vote twice. You know, uh, I've served on those era committees, and I've seen that for the most part, the people who vote in that room, just they're, they're, they don't speak the language of modern metrics. Um, so I'm going to guess that has something to do with this. But the other part is obviously the odds of electing five players on, from one committee, those odds are they're almost impossible mathematically. And so don't misunderstand me. I couldn't be happier for the players the committee did elect, but I think they really got this one wrong in the case of Dick Allen. Doug, if you have any quick thoughts on Dick Allen, love to hear them. Well, I, I was fortunate to get to talk to him quite a bit in, in Philadelphia. And then I kept in touch, uh, you know, over text and, and phone calls over the years. So it was, yeah, it was pretty devastating to, you know, his loss. And I mean, I just remember him from a baseball standpoint coming out on the field when I was, you know, playing like, I don't know, 2000 or something. And he took batting practice and I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> this guy <laughs> literally should be in our lineup. I mean, the top, right. the top hand action that he had where he just got on top of the ball and, and he hit line drives. I mean, this wasn't like towering. It just missiles everywhere. And uh, the, the ability to square the ball up was was ridiculous. And I think he was probably in like loafers and just like, you know, like it wasn't <laughs> like he was, And I mean, wow. So uh, I got to know his story more on that personal level. And then I read a really good um, uh, by Nathanson, his uh, biography on him. Right. And it was you know really compelling. But you know, one thing I learned about Dick Allen or just started to think about through his life and his baseball life was that when he played in Little Rock, Arkansas for double A, he effectively integrated Little Rock, Arkansas. And you started to realize that so many players integrated, became Jackie Robinsons in different communities across America when baseball really started to open up. And, and there was still a very heavy burden. It wasn't like Robinson came through and that everybody was cool. Like Little Rock had, you know, clan rallies and different things going on. Dick Allen was very stressed. The left field fence was low and open and he was always nervous about someone coming after him and and he still had to perform so that generation after jackie when there was a sentiment like oh everything's cool everything's fine what's the problem and then players are going through these experiences then you realize that you know these were players and men that really carried a lot on their shoulders to to keep the door open and you know alan you know definitely was one of those players because he still performed under that kind of duress so um so i just learned a lot about him the challenges and, you know, he had a lot of complexities. He was a great performer. And like you said, of his era, you look at some of the things he did over like an 11-year span, and you're just like, wow, this guy was in a class by himself. So um, so he's, he's, he'll be sorely missed. And, um, 
you know, definitely enjoyed the wisdom he imparted post career. And he was, he was a funny guy too. Just had, he kept it, kept you laughing. Yeah. I, again, it's amazing. This seems impossible, right? But I never met Dick Allen. <laughs> he, like he was way more available to, to chat with people like you than people like me. Yeah. You know, I did, I went to a couple of card shows, um, back in the day that he was appearing in, but never had the chance, but it was incredible. Yeah. You know, people, people came to those shows with some amazing memorabilia and memories and stories. And that's how I met, uh, the home run historian, Bill Jenkinson, who had, has walked off every legendary home run that Dick Allen ever hit and still believes that it, it's basically Babe Ruth and Dick Allen for the title of the human beings who hit home runs that traveled farther than anyone else's in the history of baseball. I mean, I know the Hall of Fame doesn't have a category for that, but they need a category for this guy. And let's hope next time they meet, that'll happen. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You know, Doug, I'm not sure how we got this far into this podcast without mentioning there's a lockout going on in our sport, <laughs> but, but it's time to talk about it with a man who is guaranteed to make us all smarter with his great perspective on this and everything else. It's one of the great left-handed relievers of his generation. And now one of the great left-handed labor minds of his generation, Andrew Miller. Andrew, how are you, my friend? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, guys. I can't tell you how much we appreciate you joining us. Um, you know, Andrew, you've been a member of the Player Association's Executive Committee for so long. If I remember right, I think this is actually your third labor negotiation you've been a part of. Is that right? Yeah, that's pretty much right. I would say I was, I was involved in 11, uh, pretty heavily in 16, and then this go around. Right when I got to the major leagues, we got a deal done in, uh, I guess, what after the 06 season. But I, I was... Uh, Pretty new to the game and didn't really know what was going on. Basically, saw the news and uh, was was happy that there'd be you know just a continuation of what we had. So certainly gained appreciation and understanding over the years. Yeah. So all right. So three labor negotiations. I'm I'm sure your teammates think you're a glutton for punishment, <laughs> but tell us why you've always been so interested in this part of baseball. Yeah, you know, it, it's one of those things that, like I said, you you want to talk about gaining appreciation for for something when you enter a locker room and, and Doug will probably back me up on this. And you start to hear the stories that have been passed down, not only from the guys in your locker room, from the guys that they played with and the, the generations that have that have basically, you know, sacrificed so much and fought so hard to give us all the great things we have in the game today. It, it gives you a little bit of, uh, you know, a, more than a little bit of desire to, to carry that forward and pass it along to the next generation. OK, so, th so three labor negotiations and this one has led us here. So here's a question for you. I, I know your kids are young. But if your kids were to ask you to explain, Dad, why is there a work stoppage going on? How would you explain it to them? 
Well, you know, certainly we're at the point where, you know, it is officially a work stoppage. We're not missing games or anything, but I, I think I, you know, my son loves baseball. So, you know, to him, I would say, you know, it's a little bit more complicated than just a game. It, it is a business there, you know, to build these big, beautiful stadiums, to, to sign these players, to all the, the pieces, all the wheels that have to go in motion are part of the business in the game. And that's negotiated by the players in a sense against the owners in order to get a deal through what's called collective bargaining. So, you know, again, we have history, our, our players unionized back in the sixties. And once they did that, it gave them a lot of leverage to negotiate and, and to get a lot of the great things that I myself have been able to, to attribute to playing this game. Yeah. And Andrew, you know, during these periods that you've been involved in, it's categorized or classified as labor peace. Uh, so, did you feel that way going through it, that it was important to try to figure out a way to accomplish all that's been done in the last two decades to have peace? Or was that something that, you know, you kind of weren't sure what the repercussions that you might kind of pay later? I mean, how has that peace been in your mind? Yeah, absolutely. I, other than, you know, my childhood, and I was certainly, I was a fan of the game for the 94 strike and, and losing that World Series and all that came with that. And, and you know, the the downside of having to win fin win fans back really uh but since then you're right it has been peace and that's a good thing that means that, that things are working and things are, are going well and we're able to to get a deal done every five years historically is the way baseball does it at least since i've been around and, and that's a great thing but at the same time we've seen changes in the game and this is our chance as players to address those changes and, and we're not exactly happy that's no secret uh we've certainly seen it you know, particularly since the last deal, uh, things have changed in ways that maybe we didn't quite foresee and, and didn't quite plan for. And, and uh, you know, that's uh, that's the way it works under the system we have. Now is our chance to, to adjust the system to make it work a little bit better. Look, we want to ask you about some of that stuff. But let me ask you this, since you alluded to this. How much do you worry about how fans react even to a lockout in December? Um you know, I've covered a lot of labor talks and I, I mean, I know how I know how fans think. And this is an excuse for a lot of people to unload on baseball. And that always pains me as somebody who loves it. I don't know if you hear from fans. Uh, how much how much do you think about fans as you go through this process and avoiding the pain and the repercussions of potentially actually missing games. Yeah. I mean, constantly the, the fans are the lifeblood of this game. That's what keeps us going. And, and a lot of what we're trying to accomplish is things to make the game better, make the game more competitive. Uh, you know, baseball was having this huge positive movement. All the, all the signings that we had, the teams that were excited, the teams that now felt like they were going for it or adding players. And that was a great, story for baseball that's something we can all get behind that's the kind of thing that my neighbors want to talk about in the street and you know the the kids that come over to my house want to ask about you know how's this guy going to be on this team and we lost that and the reality is the lockout is a move by management by baseball uh whether i agree or disagree with it doesn't really matter that was their their decision and you know it's where we are so we have to to tackle that the best we can but yeah it's uh something we always concern ourselves with and the fans are are ultimately what drive this game yeah, so you alluded to this. In the days leading up to the lockout deadline, we saw more than $2 billion 
committed to free agents. And, you know, it felt kind of ironic. Obviously, there's a lot of money in baseball, and obviously a lot of that money is going to players. So how would you explain what players have an issue with? All right. That's, uh, you know, I guess the first thing I would say is that uh, one good free agent, you know, kind of boon doesn't mean that everything's okay. And the reality is this is an incredible free agent class. So let's first of all, give those guys credit and what they deserve. And if anything, you know, for me to spend this on its head is it, it maybe raises more questions about what's happened in other free agency periods that we've had challenges and things have moved slow. So a lot of this stuff is, uh, you know, it, it's kind of an economic theory, you know, uh, understanding the, the situations of free agency that, you know, I'm not an expert on, to be honest with you. I, I keep up. I try to, to know as much as I can, but we fortunately have a bunch of bright economists and whatnot <laughs> that can help us guide us through these situations. But I guess that would be my first reaction to that. And then, you know, ultimately, you know, what we're trying to do is we've drawn a lot of issue with essentially the way, you know, competitive nature of teams hasn't grown the way we've expected to every player steps on the field every single day shoot every player right now is working out competing trying to be better and try to help themselves and their team win games next year and uh we think that a lot of the issues maybe with you know, you want to talk about free agency uh are drawn back to not enough teams and the reality is you know i think every team but too many teams not attempting to compete at that moment in time for that year or even in a lot of cases for multiple years so I think we look to address a lot of that stuff. There's certainly a lot of moving pieces and how we accomplish that. But right now, maybe the system that's in place is starting to been, be exploited by, you know, teams in certain situations in order to kind of elongate these rebuilding sessions. And that's not good for the base game of baseball. And, you know, not good for fans. Fans want to go out and see a competitive product every night. And that's that's what we want to sell to them is, you know, the best version of baseball, no matter where they catch a game, no matter what time of year. Well, and Andrew, you know, a lot of this comes through leadership and certainly you've taken a lead role executive subcommittee. You know, what has been sort of the, the messaging to be able to keep players all together on this? Because as you mentioned, you mentioned free agents, there's, you know, wealthy free agents, there's rookies, there's a middle class. There's been a lot of discussion about the middle class and concerns there. How, you know, how has it been that leadership's been able to say, yes, we are in different stages, but we're on the same page? Yeah, I think, you know, to my not to call you old, but communication is key. And I'm sure that's been preached to you, but you can call them old. That, it's sorry. fine. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> we're lucky in this day and age. I've seen it through my career. The The technology is something that's in our favor. The ability for guys to communicate through text message and FaceTime and, and group chats and social media and stuff like podcasts. And, and that will allow us to get our message to everybody and make sure everybody is involved and therefore able to understand you know, why this piece needs to move this direction, why we're fighting for this, because the reality is all of our proposals are meant to to help every player in every class and every situation and every position. And a lot of times it may not seem as straightforward as others. And we have to be able to communicate that to guys so that they understand that, hey, this is the big picture. This is why this moving piece affects this piece. And the reality is that's exactly it is. We're just we're looking to address every class of player in every situation and, and improve upon what they have now. Well, and Andrew, just, you know, with respect to that, being able to accomplish that, what I noticed that was impressive to me is your executive subcommittee, a lot of the leaderships, these are tremendous players, Max Scherzer, Francisco Lindor, uh, Derek Cole. Uh, that wasn't always the case. I mean, there was 
definitely periods before I played that a lot of star power was in the room. But I'd say in my career, that was kind of loose. I mean, maybe you saw Tom Glavin out later, but there was a lot of top flight players that weren't necessarily involved in the day-to-day meetings. What impact does that have to have that kind of leadership willing to go to the mat for the organization for the future? It's huge. And, and you're right. Not everybody wants to see a middle reliever stand up and, uh, and talk about this stuff. So uh, you mentioned star players. I mean, uh, you know, uh, Max and, and Marcus Simeon signed their deals and that's basically what they were asked about on the podium in front of their new team was how's collective bargaining going and for us to have guys like that, that are educated on all the topics and understand and also willing to put their names out there and stand up for everything is in my view, greatly important. And, we're very lucky to have them and, and, you know, whether they were star players or not, they would bring a lot of value, but that just is a kind of icing on the cake for us. You know, you got a big time pitching staff in that room. So (laughs) if you guys need to go out and have like an interest squad labor game, I like your chances. Executive committee against the world. (laughs) Anyway, uh, back to um, teams that don't try to compete. Um, I, I know that, Players have talked a lot about this. Uh, people like uh, Doug and I have talked a lot about this, about the teams that we think are not trying to compete. And, I, 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 you know, one of the things I find interesting in this conversation is trying to define that. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, some of those teams that have been accused of not trying, of tanking, like the Tigers, the Rangers, uh, were among the teams that were spending big bucks this winter. And, you know, so I've heard people on the other side say, see, this shows that this isn't tanking. It's just the normal cycles that teams go through. How would you respond when people say that? I think the what I would say is that there are cycles in this game. You know, very rarely do you see, you know, a run like the Yankees had or, you know, that, that dynasty type run. But, I think from our perspective, the cycles have become more frequent and longer of downtime. And we don't want to see that again. You want to see a division that's competitive. If you, if you follow the Cardinals, you want to see four teams going for it because then every game's interesting. Then you think that, all right, well, they're not trying to load up on this year and they're giving it up on this year. The last thing you want to see is your team playing a, uh, something that's defining a pennant and then another team playing a team that's essentially running out, not their best players. And, there's just a lot that goes into it. You know, part of that is it, it's hard for us to accept a team standing up and, and having their mouthpiece and be able to say, we're not going for it. We're not going to hold this player. Or we're not going to call this player up. We're not going to use this player as much as we should because the reality is we're not going to win this year. This is more about a draft pick or this is more about getting some sort of benefit other than trying to win the game. This is a game. This is, you know, as much as we compare – as much as we care about competing and stuff, we're probably no fun to play Monopoly or ping pong with. <laughs> we want to see the teams have the same sort of values that we do on that front. You know, one of the things I find really uh, interesting is, right, how do you combat this? And it feels like the way to combat it is to incentivize competing and create disincentives for teams that, that don't want to compete. Um, let me ask you about, an idea that uh, your lead negotiator, Bruce Meyer, actually talked about in the, in that press conference uh, on Friday, I guess it was, which is a- addressing it through the draft, uh, possibly with uh, some sort of draft lottery. And I wonder how you think that idea compares with 
one that I, that I personally find really interesting that's been kind of bounced around, which is the idea that instead of awarding the top pick in the draft to that team that lost 112 games, why not award it to the team that tried like heck to make the playoffs and just missed? So the draft order, instead of worst record, would start with best record that missed the playoffs. How, what do you yeah. think about those two ideas? I think they'd work. Yeah, I think uh, I, I think creative ideas are what we're all about, and that has been discussed. And you know, you, you worry about the team that maybe thinks that it's better to lose a game for the first pick or whatever. But the reality is, we got to get two sides to agree. And you're absolutely right. The draft right now is somewhere that there's such value for teams. I won't name the owner, but somebody uh, on uh, I believe it was Twitter mentioned that how much they essentially value a draft pick versus what they have to pay them. And that spread is enormous. So maybe randomizing that will certainly disincentivize teams from wanting to get that higher pick, which is more valuable and has a, a greater value attached to it. So there are ways to do it and we're open to them. And I, you know, an idea like yours is the type of thing that we want to be able to sit around amongst each other, the players, the economists, the lawyers, everybody with experience, Tony Clark, and, and try to come up with a way to see it. Does this work? Does it not work? What what could a loophole be? But we need that type of thing to hit the table in order to be able to, to truly discuss it and, and take a deep dive on it. The lottery is something that uh, the NBA and I believe the NHL have pretty similar forms of. It's certainly something that, depending on how you do it, could create some disincentive from you know that that losing record. You don't want to see teams racing to the bottom at the end of the year. You want to see them go out and compete and put the best product on the field. Like, you know, I feel like I've said a hundred times. <laughs> well, and Andrew, like the, to get all this information and understanding, you have certainly a lot of experience. So I'm curious, you know, how this sort of family works, uh, who sort of inspired you as you were learning, getting more involved in this. And then who are you kind of seeing as a, that next generation you're passing it on to? Yeah. Uh, like I said, when I, when I entered the locker room, I was very fortunate and you know, the game has shifted away from this a little bit, but I joined a Detroit Tigers team that had veterans all across the locker room. And next to me was a guy that ended up kind of being a uh, very important to our union for a while was Curtis Granderson was uh, starting his career off, but just listening and learning from those guys, I got traded pretty quickly to Florida. My first year there, I was elected team rep. It's a long story, but it was actually on my start day and there was a lot of complications. But once that happened, I think maybe it kind of forced me to take it a little bit more seriously. I, I got to know people there. Uh, Alan Price became my go to for everything. I got to meet, you know, Don and, and Michael Weiner, And, you know, I got to kind of really get my hands dirty and start to understand it. And a lot of that comes from just basically asking questions. The guy on your team comes and says, hey, you know, what's going on here? What's the rule on this? You know, am I supposed to get this or that? And honestly, I didn't have the answer. I, I probably still don't have the answer that often. It's a matter of, okay, find the person that does and get back to them and kind of be that kind of bridge in the communication. So I've taken a lot of pride in it. At this point, I'm invested. I've met a lot of great people and, and, and honestly learned a lot. And I think that you know this applies to you know me as a baseball player, but also whatever it is I get to do down the road and whatever you know endeavors I, I find myself in you know later on in life. And it's it's really been a good experience, you know, despite what's going on right now. But in, in the picture for me personally, it's something that it's been great for me. You know, as I mentioned, I've, I've covered a lot of these labor negotiations. And like another thing that interests me a lot is what normally, 
what does it normally take to generate momentum toward that big solution? And you probably heard me ask Tony Clark this the other day. Um, normally, it's some kind of deadline. Um, but we had the lockout deadline come and go. And you could you could tell that it really wasn't generating the type of movement on either side toward a deal that you'd ideally need to get a deal. And so as we look ahead, what has to happen to get these negotiations moving, flowing? Uh, is it getting to the end of January when free agents like yourself start wondering about their negotiating window? Is it getting to the, the eve of spring training when you realize that you were looking at shortening that period of time that players have to get ready? Is it getting closer to opening day when we're starting to worry about losing games? What do you foresee ahead that can make this start moving? You know, I, the way that the, this whole thing is designed is it just takes both sides to really come. And, you know, obviously I have one side of the story, but uh, I, I, we've had significant proposals on the table since April. We, you know, are prepared to, you know, work this through as long as necessary. But ideally, you're right. There's no, you know, of course, we've got the holidays coming. Of course, we've got this. There's always an excuse. The reality is that, you know, I, I think that, you know, we've made and are willing to make, you know, creative proposals proposals that are fair proposals that accomplish goals that benefit both players and teams in the game. So, you know, obviously that's our perspective, but that's our position. And I think it's, uh, you know, very defensible from what's happened. So, you know, Dallas was certainly disappointing in the sense that we had a lot of players show up. We had a lot of staff. We, you know, certainly were ready to, to get down to the nitty gritty. And uh, just because it doesn't happen, doesn't really mean anything changes. It's, uh, it's the type of thing will work, you know, through the night as soon as, you know, things get moving and what that spark is, I don't know. Uh, you know, you mentioned deadlines. There's certainly a lot of uh, deadlines that you could create in your head that could potentially, you know, be that spark. You know, whatever it is, uh, we're ready to go. And, and, you know, until then, we'll communicate with guys and explain what's going on. Yeah, well, you know, that's really what I mean is that proposals are supposed to start generating conversation and thought. And for whatever reason, that hasn't happened yet. Uh, I'll give you another example um, of something that their side has talked about a lot, and that is playing rules, pitch clocks, limiting shifts. Um, it's, they've talked about that. I've written a lot about it um, for a year, experimenting with changing the rules to make the sport more entertaining. And it sure seemed like that was they were doing that because they wanted to get to the bargaining table and kick it around with your side, which they need to do. You play the game. And yet, uh, Rob Manfred admitted himself last week that they have taken playing rules off the table. Um, so here's my big worry. And you just talked about this. See, the conversation about rules seems to symbolize what I think our big worry is. In a perfect world... Both sides would view something like this, making the game as entertaining as possible as a common problem that you should be able to work through together. And instead, we had the commissioner describing it as, these were his words, a contentious issue that needs to be set aside for another time. Uh, do you worry that there's not enough of a sense of common purpose 
in these talks and even in general? Yeah, you know, rules are a tricky subject. And, you know, you mentioned, you know, experimental. To me, that's always kind of a red flag. We have a game, Steve, so much history that, you know, it's hard to want to change anything. And a, a, a clock is something that baseball's never had. Does that mean that we are completely opposed to discussing it, discussing it, learning about it, figuring out how it could help? Absolutely not. Uh, does it mean I can speak for the other, you know, 1,200 or so guys <laughs> that are that are, you know, represented by the union on what they think? No, but that takes time in order to be able to, to communicate. To you know, we need to see, you know, reasons why it would work. We need to be able to take that time in a, a boardroom or a Zoom or a team text to, you know, hey, what do you guys think of this? How would this work? Do you think this would make it better? Because at the end of the day, rules do change. We have changed rules throughout the history of the game, and most of them have probably benefited the game, and that's what we want. We want games to be as engaging and as fun as possible for our fans. And for the players, that's that's great for the players. That's great for the owners. It's great for the fans. That's a we all win when that happens. Uh, but yeah, when it's not being discussed, it's not really going anywhere. And and again, you know, details help. It's uh, you know, you mentioned the word experiment again. They've been experimenting with this stuff at various levels in the fall league and spring training. You know, show us some da data. Show us your know, reasons why you think this one is working or this one's not working, and, and let's 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 hash it out because there's definitely ways we can improve the game. We'd be silly to think otherwise, but it's a matter of going about it the right way and going about a way that everybody can embrace and, and, and really get behind. Well, Andrew, you know, with that point, uh, I guess one thing for, you know, audience and listeners, is there something to dispel about matching up what's actually happening in the negotiating room and what is actually publicly put out there? Uh, because sometimes there's a, you know, definitely my experience shows there's often a mismatch between what's actually happening and what the perception or the strategy <laughs> is on what to communicate. Yeah, I don't know that I want to go as far as say don't, you know, don't believe everything you read, but there's a lot of half truths and a lot of not quite full, uh, you know, proposals that are that are floated and this and that. So, you know, I think sometimes it's it's hard as a player that's involved because you see things and you feel like it's not being presented at all the way that you thought it actually happened. But, you know, that's one of our big battles. You know, Major League Baseball is a, a very powerful entity in its own right, and its ability to, you know, handle PR is something that, that certainly, you know, at times we find ourselves having to combat. But that's where, you know, our ability to communicate will really have to shine through, and, and we're doing such a good job of that now, and, and guys are making themselves available around the league to explain, you know, that, Hey, you know, maybe this isn't quite right, or this is what actually happened, or this is our position and why. So, uh, absolutely. It's, uh, it's interesting for us to have to navigate, uh, Tony and Bruce do a great job of that. And that just kind of filters down and hopefully the message gets to everybody. And I think it is. All right. I've got a really important question now. I don't know how many people know this out there. Andrew Miller, is as big a Tom Petty fan as I know in, in baseball, maybe in the world. Okay. So is there a Tom Petty song that describes these negotiations? <laughs> oh, um, you know, uh, there's a couple I can think of, but you know, to be a little less uh, controversial, I think right now, <laughs> yeah, the waiting kind of stands out. I think that's the hardest part is we all want to get something done. We're, you know, what we love doing, at least, you know, as players, is we love playing the game and love being out there. Uh, so I, I would say the waiting is, is probably the, the the hardest part right now for us. And then, 
Uh, I'll give you a deep cut because you, you kind of gave me a heads up on this question. Uh, I'm going to go with rhino skin because you've got to be tough. Rhino skin. Roll off your back. So, uh, you know, Tom Petty can offer a little bit of everything, and uh, what a great artist he's missed. Uh, one of the highlights of my life is catching him in Cleveland a couple years back. So, uh, thanks for bringing well, that Well, then they have a track, Don't Come Around Here No More. That, that sounds like <laughs> uh, that could fit pretty well. We don't want that. No, no, no. <laughs> We can, uh, you know, you could go a lot of directions with that. He's got a, a huge catalog and, uh, you know, awesome musician. Yeah, the, the the waiting is the hardest part. We, we we're definitely going to latch onto that one for a while because <laughs> we got a lot of waiting to do. I think before this thing gets solved, unfortunately. So, you know, let, let me, I just want to ask you a little bit about baseball stuff. I you played on a Cardinals team that in September you guys did not lose a game for like three weeks. What was that like to, to win every game you played for three weeks? I wish I could say I contributed to more of these, but I was also in Cleveland for what? Yeah. 21? Yes. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Uh, it's, it, I mean, that is just the most fun baseball can be. No matter how the day goes, you always seem to come out on top. And whether that's a, a blowout early in the game or that's a, a big come from behind, you know, somebody getting the hit or making the play. It's just every night's exciting, and every night you go in with a smile on your face, going through the high five line. So it's just, uh, it's one of those when you get on a roll like that, just soak it all in, enjoy it, and, and you know, stay on that wave as long as you can. All right, so let's let's spin this back now. You all right, your season came down to a, a one game wild card game, and which meant that it, it your season ended on one swing of the bat, the the Chris Taylor walk off homer. So just based on your experience with that, should the wild card setup change? I mean, it's dramatic, but it should it, should it stay at one game? Should it go to best of three? Should there be more than just uh, two wild cards in each league? You've lived this. What do you think? Yeah, I've been on the wrong side of the, the one game wild card a, a couple times. And, uh, you know, on one hand, like you said, it's exciting. I, I don't know that Cardinals fans will look back on it too fondly. And, you know, certainly – those of us on the losing side of that game, uh, it didn't go the way we wanted. But I imagine if you're a baseball fan without a whole lot of allegiance in that game, it was a pretty incredible game to watch. So that, from my perspective as a player, is that's the system we had, and that's fine. And, you know, we knew it. It's fair. Uh, you know, Milwaukee was a great team throughout the regular season. They they earned the division. There's no doubt about that. Do I think, you know, we'd like a second shot at them? Of course. But, you know, they earned the ability to get that full series. And, you know, we went in and, you know, just happened to run into Max Scherzer in the bullpen that the Dodgers have. So, uh, you know, it seems to me it created a pretty exciting system. Is there another system that might work? Yeah, of course. And I think that, you know, it's no secret. We did an expanded playoff in the COVID year uh, and, you know, it got more teams in and, you know, was able to create a, a larger, you know, more of a tournament sense to it. Uh, I think that's something that's no secret is, is up for discussion. It's on the table. It's a matter of doing it the right way. I think uh, it's getting the balance of, you know, you want teams competing all through the season for position in the playoffs, to make the playoffs, all that stuff. And then you don't want to kind of, you know, devalue the regular season because that's one thing baseball has is nobody can compete with us on length of season and how long the grind is and how important it is to, to come out on top, particularly in your division. And, and how about your, your role within all of this? You've played a long time. And, and when you're sort of a lefty specialist, uh, there are certain – labels that come with that, especially as the data starts to get so much deeper as it has in the last, you know, 10 years or so. What's your role look like 
if you look at the beginning of your career versus now, especially through analytics and, and how bullpens are managed? Yeah, I gosh, I don't know. Maybe I would have had a longer leash or a shorter leash as a starter. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Uh, it's uh, I, I feel like I've seen from a pitching perspective just about every angle other than you know being a, a successful starter. So <laughs> it's uh, I, it's interesting because it really has been embraced and a lot of it has brought out positive parts of the game. We uh, we can you know analyze things and understand them and and pass that on to the fan and why the move is made or why the move should have been made or why this player is doing this. And that can be a lot of fun. At times, I do worry that maybe it's a little overboard and, and we're kind of caught up in that as opposed to just kind of enjoying the, the athletic competition between players that are the best in the world at what they do. So how you juggle that fine line, I don't have the answers, but I think it's uh, you know certainly we've come a long way from the Moneyball years and, and, and what's going on now. And it, it's more of a, you know, whether you want to call it, you know, group think or whatnot, it, it's, it's something that's been embraced by everybody and, uh, you know, I hope we don't lose sight of what baseball is really about. And again, that's the competition basically between the pitcher and the batter. Well, the good news is that uh, there's never been a greater demand for relief pitchers, which is <laughs> what you do for a living. Okay, <laughs> But I, I was thinking about this part. Um, you're, you know, you're still one of the unsigned free agents out there. What do you think life's going to be like if you only have a few days to sign on the other end of this so you can get to spring training. Yeah. I mean, the whole, you know, this early off season lockout is, is new. Certainly for me, uh, how the market would react, what would happen. I'm sure the time frames are all, you know, if you were to get squeezed, everything is negotiated, but yeah, it would be interesting. And, and again, I, I go back to, you know, just a week ago, we were, you know, admiring the, the the great rate of the free agent market and teams were excited and, and you know we're adding players and you know who needs what that type of discussion was was good for us all so you know what it, it whatever it is it is uh you know we have time to to get this done uh, it just takes everybody kind of you know walking up to the table and, and hashing things out and like i said i think from my perspective we're absolutely in that position it's a matter of uh getting mlb to the same spot yeah, one more thing, and uh, you know, I know I've kind of mentioned this, but my biggest fear is that this thing takes on a life of its own and endangers the start of the regular season, and we start missing games. I, I mean, I've seen what happens in 94, 95 when you start missing games and how, how angry it makes the customers, the people that love the sport. How, how important in your mind, is it to never get to that point where you lose regular season games? Yeah, it's important to, to give everybody the full experience and, and to have a full season. Uh, we certainly, you know, we saw that through COVID. It was a challenging year for, you know, different reasons than this. But, you know, at the same time, we're not going to sacrifice our goals or sacrifice what's right for us and right for the game in order to get something done because of a deadline. I, I think that we're prepared, unfortunately, to, to take as long as it takes uh ideally it's not ideally we get it done and and you know it, it's something that we're not talking about again we you know not to rehash it but we don't have to be in a lockout right now that was uh the you know decision by major league baseball we we're going to negotiate with or with a lockout and uh you know it, it's uh it's uh, something that created this pressure point but you know we're prepared for anything and everything and uh it's it hasn't been a secret that there's been 
some some build up to this CBA expiring or the previous CBA expiring. So it, it's not that we're unprepared for whatever may come our way. Yeah. Well, as long as guy. Okay, I'm sorry. Go yeah, and I, and I guess within you mentioned being prepared. Uh, do you think there's anything to the idea that there's a couple of generations now of players that have not had major labor dispute hasn't really missed the, you know you missed the paycheck in through covid but it, from a labor standpoint is there i guess where does that confidence come and be able to go through all that given it hasn't happened in, in quite some time yeah i think the the biggest thing for us is you know not only is it you know been somewhat at least you know foreseeable in the sense that we need to prepare for the the scenario but we're very fortunate to have players like yourself, players that have been through some of these hard times and, and fought these battles around to share these stories. I'm sitting here looking at a, a Bobby Bonilla baseball card. I use base, old baseball cards as my uh, bookmarks. And, uh, you know, Bobby Bo is with us, with the union. He works for us and he can sit around and tell war stories and say, hey, don't don't overlook this. Don't forget this. Or this is what, you know, this is what affected us or this was a challenge for us. So uh, having those sorts of voices around Steve Rogers telling stories, it goes on and on and, and guys are willing to educate themselves and, and gear. I mean, you know how it is. Uh, you hear a guy like that, tell a story, you're all ears, just soak it all in. And you know, whether they're talking about the big at bat or the big pitch they made or, or talking about a labor issue, it's something that you try to soak up and appreciate as a player. Well, Andrew, as, as long as people like you are involved in this process, I'm still confident. I, I know that, the, that there are songs in the Tom Petty catalog, they can help somehow or other guide us to the finish line here. So keep running down the dream. Um, I, I know you're not lending your time and your wisdom to everyone who, who asks these days, so it means a lot to us that you visited us here. Hope your holidays are special, and I hope the lockout is a short one. Th thanks again for your time. Oh, of course. Thanks for having me, guys. The pleasure. Uh, hopefully next time it's on a, a better topic. Thanks, yeah, like we all vote for that. Thanks so much, Andrew. <laughs> Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever. And that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. One more great product from LinkedIn. You're there to network. You're there to look for jobs. You're there to post jobs. And how about LinkedIn Sales Navigator? It's a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date, first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash baseball show. That is linkedin.com slash baseball show for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash baseball show and get started. Okay, Doug, it is time once again for listener trivia. Our way of involving you, our favorite listeners, in this show. And we continue to literally involve you by picking a trivia question from some lucky listener. Then we invite that lucky listener to join us right here on the show and attempt to stump us 
with their question. We'll tell you how you can do that in just a few minutes. Doug, we have somehow gotten three of the last four <laughs> questions right in this segment, which it just strikes me as ridiculous <laughs> because we only got three right the whole season. And now we've gotten three right in the postseason, in the offseason, whatever this is. And we're not even employing your beloved devious cheating scheme. Yeah. So so what's up with that? Do you think maybe we've just gotten smarter or something since the season ended? No, we're, we're just primetime performers. You know, when it when it's sort of the everything's on the line, you know, we just step it up a level and our brains just go to sort of Martian level skill set. And uh, so I don't know what the analytics would say about that, but I, I'm, I'm rooting for the, we're getting some extraterrestrial help right here because we're so excited about being a dynasty once again. All right, wait, this is prime time? When the season ends, that's prime this time? Is a, this is our playoffs. It's still going. <laughs> what? Okay, what? why don't we get the extraterrestrial help during the season? Where is it then? When we need it. They're dormant. This is, you know, it's like hibernation. <laughs> Martians hibernate in during baseball season. Is that what it is? Yeah. Okay. I've noticed I've never seen a Martian at a game. That probably explains it. All right, well, we're on a roll. I'm not optimistic about staying on the roll, but you never know. So let's welcome in this week's special trivia guest star. It's a guy who has stumped us before, Adam Kane. Hey, Adam, welcome back to Starkville. Thank you for having me back. I'm happy to be here. Well, we are happy to have you here. And Adam, you know what really flatters us? Um, best I can tell, you have tweeted exactly one time during the entire month of December, and it was at us to hit us with this trivia question so what's up with that? Should I just assume that you missed us? I did, yes. Um, I'm more of a, an observer on Twitter most of the time, but <laughs> right. my trivia brain's always going, and, and I thought of a question, so I figured I'd send it to you guys. Yeah, I, yeah. Dormant, Twitter dormancy is actually a really good policy that almost nobody on Twitter follows, <laughs> so, so I, I admire you for doing that. Um, I'm sure you heard us talking. We, we've been on a hot streak um, a good chance you can end it. So uh, let, why don't we get this over with? Uh, Adam, what is your question? You know, I usually root for you guys um, when I'm listening. But <laughs> I think this week as the, the listener representative, I have to yeah. be rooting for us listeners. Um, all right, let me make sure I get this wording right on my question. So the <laughs> question was inspired by the new uh, middle infield. I don't know if they'll stay at middle infield, but the new duo in Texas. Um Corey Seager and Marcus Simeon. So just got me thinking about some of the best middle infield duos of, of all time. And my question is, can you name the only second base and shortstop teammates to both hit 20 or more home runs in four consecutive seasons? I'm a little disappointed that you're not rooting for us. <laughs> but I admire I'll your listen, question. When I listen tomorrow, I'll root for you again. How about that? Fair enough. Uh, all right, we'll go with that. Sure. Um, hey, this is a tough one, man. A second baseman and a shortstop who hit 20 homers or more apiece yeah. four seasons in a row. Yeah. So wow, that's a good one. I've been racking my brain all day long. And like, here's what I do. I try to write down as many double play combinations as I can think of. Mm -hmm. So I can whittle down what might be the answer. Um, so let's start with this, Doug. This almost has to be a fairly modern set of teammates because 
middle infielders didn't hit that many home runs yeah. back in the day. Yeah. Um, so 21st though, century. 21st century. Yes. Okay. So there you yeah. go. So like I, well, that's what I, I was, was definitely going was, for that. But. Like I, yeah, I was going to start with Trammell and Whitaker just because they played so long together, but I know there aren't enough 20 homers, homer yeah. seasons there. All right. So everybody else, I think on my list was a 21st century combination. So the next most prolific double play combination was Chase Utley, Jimmy Rollins in Philadelphia, but it doesn't feel like Jimmy Rollins had enough 20 homer seasons. Uh, I thought about Derek Jeter and Robbie Cano. I thought about Jeter and Alfonso Soriano. Uh, I don't think Jeter was a 20 homer guy year in, year out. Was he? Okay. So, I don't know. Yeah. I, right? So, I, I, I don't think so. So, basically, here's the group that I narrowed it down to. Uh, Jeff Kent and Rich Aurelia mm. from the Giants from the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Jose and Altuve and Carlos Correa mm. would be Ooh, on the list. That's a good one. Um, be- because of the Texas connection, I wrote down Ian Kinsler and Michael Young, but Michael Young didn't hit enough homers. And Dan Ugla and Hanley Ramirez. Ooh. And, you know, as I mentioned all the time in this segment, I have asked and answered many trivia questions over the years. And so my best guess because of that is Ugla and Hanley. I've, I've, you know, it's funny, Doug. I, I don't, I, I wish I didn't have these little voices in the back of my head, but I do. And the little voice is saying something to the effect of Dan Ugla was the first second baseman in history to hit 20 homers or more four years in a row. I might, I might have that wrong, but it was something like that. So I'm just going to lean toward those two, but Doug, you always have good thoughts. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I dev, Ugla is definitely on my list. Um, so here's the question. The the 2020, does it, does it count or pandemic, you know, strike, you know, how does that? Uh, no, full seasons only. Full seasons, okay. Full seasons only. All right. So it's like thinking Altuve, Correa. That sounded so good, but I'm not sure they 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 would have to have done it 2019, 2019, 17, 18, 18, 19, and 21. Well, 20 would that. And Correa's had a lot of injury issues through that yeah, period. Uh, Altuve early on wasn't a huge homer guy, but then became that guy yeah. probably by 17. Yeah. Um, well, but four years in a row. Yeah, that's a tough one. That's not this. I, I don't. Well, and then, so Richard really, it doesn't strike me having the home runs every year. So I didn't like that one so much. The other ones that I thought about was, well, how about Brett Boone and uh, A-Rod? Did they, how long did they play together? I don't think they did. They, oh yeah, they did. Just, just very, like briefly, maybe not for four years. Four years, not for, okay. No way, it was for four what years. What about Jose Ramirez and Francisco Lindor? How long? I thought about that, but when did Ramirez so move third? To third? Yeah. I don't think he played four straight years as a yeah. second baseman. Maybe you could count him, but that I I would protest. Okay. All right. <laughs> I mean, I, I kind of like your answer. I mean, because I, I, my whole strategy was looking at second baseman. Like first, you know, because that's yes. well, and Pedroia, I don't think he had 20 home runs every year, right? Pedroia and Bogarts or something mm-hmm. probably didn't even play together for years. No, 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 they, no way they'd probably play together four years. Okay, so ooh, yeah, so I think, yeah, the only scary thing is your first thought with Utley and Rollins and Cano and Jeter, but uh, I don't know, I think you're right. I'm I'll, I'll, I'll go with the Marlins, I'll go with that. Uh, okay. 
right. I, I, I have to admit, I, I don't feel great about this. <laughs> I do think we've got a shot. So let's just go with it, all right? Yeah. Adam, any chance that it's Dan Ugla and Hanley Ramirez? You got it. Whoa! No way! No way! <laughs> this is unbelievable. Doug, Good job. How yeah. can we possibly have gotten four out of five without resorting to the devious <laughs> cheating scheme when we only got three right all season? How does this make any sense? Yeah, Doug? Just, I'm telling you, playoff baseball, man, or like cr- Christmas baseball or something. I don't know. Holiday baseball. I'm feeling good. <laughs> Extraterrestrial baseball. That's my that's as good an explanation as anything. This is a this is wild that this is happening. Uh well anyway, anyway if you listen regularly, you you know whether whether we get the question right or wrong, we never get it wrong anymore. But we still bring in our mayor, Mayor Tim McMaster, to provide the highlight of the segment by playing some magical play-by-play clip involving this week's answer. So let's bring in Mr. Mayor. What do you got for us this week, Tim? I was hoping to find a clip that incorporated like back-to-back homers for them. Yeah! I couldn't find that. So I have two really? just separate clips, but one's ugly, one's Hanley, and the Hanley one kind of works with the trivia. So not my finest moment, Jason, but, but still okay. <laughs> Here you go. And the, the call on ugly Wait, is, is Rick it's supposed Watson, to be, it's great. It's a yeah, but look, this is supposed to be magical. Nice. So well, we will reserve me. judgment. I, maybe I'm talking myself down. You tell yeah, me. Yeah, Here yeah, you right. It might be we magical. Slider, deep. This game's tied. His name is Dan Ogla. <laughs> comes set, throws the 0-1 to Hanley. A swing and a high fly ball deep to left. There's no doubt about it. Number 30 for Hanley Ramirez. And the Marlins lead it 4 to nothing. And on one swing of the bat, Hanley Ramirez has made the Marlins the first infield in National League history, the second infield in Big League history, with 330 home run hitters in a single season. So there you go, 330 home runs there. So you get bonus points if you can name who the third baseman or first baseman who hit 30 that year was. Would it be Lowell? Uh, I think it's after Mike Lowell's time. After Mike. Wait, wait a second. Hold on a second. Wait a minute. Wait, wait, we're not going to get stumped yeah, that's by right. a late-breaking trivia question right. we to, after we got the actual trivia question right. That's right. We got to bask. We got to bask. This this could throw us off, so we're going to bask and yeah. just accept Right. Listening. Strike all this from the record. <laughs> what was the answer? So Mike Jacobs. Jacobs? Mike Jacobs. Mike Jacobs. Oh. Uh, 2008. So nice. he was the first baseman. Yeah, nice. Good stuff. Never would have gotten uh, it. Yeah, all right, so the, the Dan Ugla call, the Dan Ugla call, definitely magical. Um, I, I loved his, uh, Rich had the greatest Dan Ugla call ever. His name is Dan Ugla. So it was so much fun to hear that again. Adam, love the question, man. And uh, just so you know that we do authorize you to tweet at other people this month. So happy holidays, buddy. Oh, thank you so much for the, for the permission. <laughs> that's good man. take care Adam hey thanks uh, again Doug, I wanted to say um, congratulations on the Emmy so that, yeah thank you man very excited yeah it's really surreal actually but very excited yeah thank you okay one more thing this has nothing to do with trivia but it does have to do with epic Doug Glanville trivia uh, I promised that we would look this up Doug in 1999 
that enchanted season of his, went 204 for 628. And he claimed that Tony Oliva also went 204 for 628 one year. That is correct. That happened in 1970. So we promised I would look up whether anybody else ever had a season in which he went 204 for 628. Exactly 204 for exactly 628. Doug, I've just performed that research project. Wait till you hear this. Only three players in the history of baseball have ever done this. The, Tony Oliva did it in 1970. The other was Charlie Geringer in 1933. Wow. 204 for 628. So isn't Charlie Geringer a Hall of Famer? That that, that would mean that the that there are the three men who did this are two Hall of Famers, <laughs> and also you did it. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, this random guy, well, you know. That's amazing, actually. 204, 628, exactly. And and by the way, Tony Oliva did it in the year I was born, 1970. So that is cool. That is cool. <laughs> um, so I, I think that we have to alert the, one of these veterans committees. <laughs> yes, absolutely. They're, they're, they're omitting me from this. Come on. They are. You, so like this one we're got ourselves all worked up to feel sorry for the friends and family of Dick Allen. Now we got to <laughs> devote some of that pity to Doug Glanville. Yes. So now we know there's more than one magical club out there. There's not just the 3000 hit club. There's also the just as magical 204 <laughs> for 628 club. And Gl- Doug Glanville, you are in the club. Congratulations. Thank you. I will be getting the hashtag momentarily. All right, it's time to head back to one of our favorite places in all of Starkville. By that I mean the dugout. (laughs) That's the special place where Doug Glanville, noted Emmy Award winner, hangs out and tells his favorite epic baseball stories. Uh, So what we decided is all off-season long, we are making the dugout a regular part of this show. So this week... Uh, we mentioned we find ourselves in the midst of a little labor limbo thing. So why don't we go there, Doug? Uh, you were once a union player rep in your day. So I'm just going to guess you must have a tale <laughs> or two from the labor adventures from your time and place. Am I right? Absolutely. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I, I look back and I, I was kind of thinking about how amazing it was when I was a rookie – I was chosen to be the alternate rep for the players association for my team. Uh, so here I am in Chicago and you have, you know, Mark Grace's of the world and Sean Dunstan's and so on. And somehow I snuck in there to kind of be an alternate and, you know, I was looking forward to it. I learned a lot and I was very interested in labor. So that's kind of what started every team after that I was a rep, but eventually I made the executive subcommittee. And so one year in Philadelphia, what I started to really learn as I got older in the game is that your role is is sort of like a liaison, the communication. And back then, Don Fear was, you know, the head of the union. And Don wasn't very big on fighting the battle in the public domain. Because, you know, <laughs> Tell me about it. Right. So 
And part of it was reasonable because he's like, well, look, a lot of these media companies own teams. There's no way that we're going to win that battle. But the other part of it was that he always wanted to have very direct communication to the players. He wanted, he went to every spring training camp every year, tell the same story over and over again to make sure that people were there <laughs> listening and, and he could answer questions. Let me guess the history of the labor movement in America. Yes. That was definitely part of it. I love that. Heard it. So, Heard that uh, yes. yeah. so that communication was key. And you recognize, you know, not everybody necessarily embraced it in the way he told it. But I also knew that there was some appreciation that he was he was there. He was available. So I remember one year as the union rep, one thing you start to take pride in is that you have your camp together. Like you don't want the responsibility that, oh, the Phillies are a mess over there or whatever. You want to make sure that you're the guy. That's the glue. So you're very possessive and concerned about making sure everything's kept in house. And that's one of the rules dealing with the media and being outside like, okay, don't, don't run to the press. If you have some issue, come to me, come to us first so we can kind of talk it through. Now that's how we hoped it would go. So one year in Philadelphia, my teammate, uh, Todd Pratt, you know, all good. We were, we were cool friends. Todd Pratt was um, really upset one day. And I think it related to, if I recall this correctly, uh, Don Fuhr had spoken in spring training and he wasn't really that thrilled. Uh, felt like he was, you know, wasn't talking in a way that that was received well as well as it should be. And he just had issues with the speech and he had issues with some of the issues. And some of the things that you'll hear a lot from players that aren't mega stars was that the union takes care of the, you know, takes care of the players that are the big stars. You know, these guys are making all this money and that's who they care about. And so you, he, it kind of bubbled over with a lot of frustration that we possibly could be on strike. And this is 2002. And so he talked to a reporter and it kind of blew up a little bit. So I remember having a really tough conversation because I had to call him. It was like the morning before a game and say, hey, man, we got to talk this through. And just sort of getting that lesson out that. You got to keep it in-house. And he, he accepted that. He understood how it made my job harder. <laughs> but it was a real lesson because, you know, Todd, I don't know if he was older, but, you know, he was at the very least a contemporary, probably a little older than I was. And trying to respect that, yeah, we're all entitled to different opinions and that's important. And we, we, we need to hear from people that may disagree in opinion or style. And I can go back to Don and say, maybe you should communicate this way. But it was really hands-on like that. And what I'm trying to envision today is this ability to navigate social media, which was not available back in, you know, O2, at least to this degree. The fact that anybody can be a leak or a pipeline or a direct access and how they have to figure out how to communicate uh, amongst themselves by maintaining that, that unified front. But at the same time, not go completely dark where the story is defined only by ownership or only by the team. And that's a tall order. And one thing I would say that was really noticeable for me is when the sign stealing broke with the Astros and it really came out 2019 or whatever, then there was this sort of blowback from players that I'd never seen before. I'd never seen players take on other players publicly in the way, in the vehement way that they did, because there was always this wall of fire saying, you know, you got to preserve that unity of amongst constituents, no matter whatever bad deeds they do we will filter it through the players association and unify around it. I think to me, the advantage of that is that players have learned that they do have a certain voice and have a certain kind of impact and can educate and share 
and work through having direct messaging. And so when I would talk into Todd, I learned a lot about, okay, that's his perspective and it's important to make sure you have a pulse for everybody. Not all these players are going to agree the timeline, how to do it, but they will present a certain level of unity because they know that anytime you show a crack at all, they're afraid that the owners might jump in and say, okay, you see, they're not on the same page. Maybe we can divide them on this. And that's just a hardball 101. I, I don't fault them for that. So I think that those lessons came from being able to talk to players personally, one-on-one, and getting the recognizing that everybody's in different stages. The veterans, rookies, arbitration eligible, guys that are retiring, they all have different concerns. And it takes like a magician's touch to figure out how to get it together. And I learned a lot from talking to the Sean Dunstons and veterans of the world to really help me understand it. So, uh, so this year I'm hoping that for this lockout, the players talk and they, they learn from each other. They get educated around the issues. They have great leadership, but I also hope that when they do come to the table, they're able to communicate in the language of the owners as well, because that's what will allow you to get something moving and ultimately something done. Of course they will. They're going to quote Tom Petty. (laughs) (laughs) That'll get it done. Uh, Wait, I want to circle back here to you and Todd Pratt. Now, I covered both of you guys in Philadelphia. So, look, Todd Pratt was a big dude. Big dude. And a a, a very, very emotional, fiery dude. Uh, Way more emotional and fiery than you. So, I'm, I'm trying to imagine this scene of you confronting him with your cool, smooth Glanville thing that you do. Let's just let, let, let's talk. With, let's let's impart a little wisdom here well, <laughs> versus this big, fiery guy who didn't like the stuff. Yeah. And you got to calm him down. So how'd that go? Well, let's start by this. It was on the phone. Okay, so let's start there. So there was no, no issue about okay, size. So you were and, safe. I was safe. Yeah. Uh, but no, Todd and I were cool. We were... <laughs> We were cool. We played like EverQuest online. Uh, we talked. We laughed a lot. <laughs> so there was no like personal tension between Todd and I. And, and that, that was what was tough because I had to kind of be more stern than I would normally ever be because I was always trying to make sure that we were peacefully on the same page. But it was really important to get the message across that that's cool. Have an issue. But let's talk first so that we could kind of come out with a unified message. I understand that. So that was, and he was very open to that. He received that very well. And I think that that was, you know, a watershed moment, but yeah, he said his piece. And of course, right away, I mean, I've seen moments with the players association when something was said and then leaked out or, or got out to the press or said to the press. And then literally the next day, the, the owners were like, Oh, you better check that. Oh, is that what you're saying? We're going to take this off the table. I mean, so you literally got threats in like real time. So, you know, I think it was important to understand that, you know, you, you needed to really make sure that you were you were secure in that position to keep things together in-house and say what you got to say. So I got to, you know, that's my role. He's got to be able to say what he has to say, the way he has to say it. And I got to I got to take it and I got to be able to, to redirect him. The, the good news is I talked to him years later. He was coaching in Greensboro. And, you know, he was sort of like, wow, I realize now in, you know, on the other side of this, like, wow, defined <laughs> benefits and pension plans and all these things that come with being retired as in a player that go to everybody equally. And that one for all, all for one is actually true on a lot of levels when it comes to the licensing and all these things. So sometimes it's hard to see it in the moment. Uh, but I knew, you know, I said time will probably bear this out really well to see how much that this is about a, a true union that everybody is 
beneficiaries at the same level. And, um, and so, yeah, that was, that was kind of cool to see that come back around, but um, yeah, it's, you got it. You got to manage it. It's just managing people and, and working with people from very different backgrounds. Yeah, you do. Uh, all right, Doug, I, I got a very different kind of labor <laughs> story that from, this is from my perspective because I've been around long enough that I covered the great baseball strike of 1994, 95. And that didn't just mean writing a story every once in a while to remind people baseball still existed and oh yeah, there's this strike going on. It meant, I, you know, I had to basically try to do play by play of all these months of negotiations that went absolutely nowhere, <laughs> nowhere. That strike went on for eight months and it never got settled. They went to court. That's how it got, that's how the strike ended. Uh, but for eight months, these sides kept meeting and meeting and meeting. <laughs> and there were some people in the media like me, Peter Gammons, <laughs> the late great Jerome Holtzman, uh, Joel Sherman was in our group, many more. We would travel around from place to place covering these meetings like they were games <laughs> you know and so at i think at one point we counted 18 different hotels mostly around the east coast that they met at <laughs> and since these were fancy places they're way way out of my price range or my newspaper's price range so we would spend day after day and like often like deep into the night hanging out in the lobbies of these <laughs> hotels that we were not staying at, okay? Writing stories that I'm pretty sure nobody even read, <laughs> waiting for press conferences that were all just a big show. So th these are really good times, Doug. But uh, here's, the, here's the, the, the thing. Since it's December, December is the month that I remember the most vividly because I just want you to picture this. We're sitting around these hotel lobbies as the holidays are approaching. Oh, no. So the Christmas carols are playing all day long. These gorgeous, gigantic hotel Christmas, Christmas trees in the lobby, all decorated. The lobbies were, were festive places. And so all day, we would sit, in the, sit around and we would watch people stroll through the lobbies with their shopping bags. They're all happy and joyous. They'd be hugging their relatives. They'd, they'd be planning their holidays. We'd be sitting there waiting for Don Fear and Bud Selig and a bunch of owners to come out and accuse each other of all sorts of dastardly stuff. And all I could think was, when do I get my life back? When do I get to be joyous? When do I get to hug my loved ones? How did I get here? How do I get out of here? <laughs> okay, so, so, so there was no holiday cheer in, in those moments there? No, there was not. And so, but, so luckily now that is Evan Drellick's job mm -hmm. to provide us with the play-by-play -play until this thing ends. So I just want to say this, Evan, <laughs> you're my hero, man, for, for many reasons, but especially this reason. Good luck to you. Have a joyous holiday season. <laughs> okay, that's going to do it for this week's show. We'll be bringing you more of this podcast magic all off-season long on the Athletic Baseball Show, which is available in its entirety absolutely free at Apple, Spotify, 
everywhere that you get your podcasts. And of course, you can still find us ad-free at The Athletic and at The Athletic app. So if you like what you hear and you would like to subscribe and give us one of those five-star reviews, that would be awesome. And thanks to everyone who has already done that. Also, if you'd like to read our work or any of the incredible writing on our site, there is no better sports writing being done anywhere than in The Athletic. If you ever thought about subscribing or giving a gift subscription to one of your loved ones, now's a great time. Just go to theathletic.com slash baseball show. And if you're a new subscriber, you can subscribe or buy a guest subscription for 33% off an annual subscription. I know you'll be happy that you did. Here comes the important part. Remember, you too can be part of this podcast because every show we invite the listener who submits the most fun trivia question of the week to join us right here. And prove once again, there's almost no baseball trivia question we can't get wrong. So how would you do that? How would you get on our show? Well, you could email us at Starkville at theathletic.com, or you can discover us on Twitter. And if you're looking to discover, say, Doug Glanville, Doug, how would someone go about that? No problem. At Doug Glanville. Very, very uh, resourceful there. D-O-U-G. Yeah. G-L-A-N-V-I. L-L-E. Beautiful. All right. Here's where I get to spell. (laughs) Discover me at J-A-Y-S-O-N-S-T. That's Jason with a Y-S-T. Just hashtag those questions. Hashtag Starkville QS. So, Doug, thanks for playing. Thanks to Andrew Miller for visiting us. Thanks to Adam Kane for the great trivia question. Thanks to the mayor of Starkville, to McMaster, for producing us and putting up with us. And thanks to you all for listening. Coming up Wednesday on the Athletic Baseball Show, it's my hero, Evan Drellick, keeping us up to date on the business of baseball. And Doug and I will see you soon on Starkville.